Uh, thank you, Corey. <coughs> Boy, it's good to see so many Arctic explorers out there this morning. Uh, it's brave weather to get out in today. I'm glad you took time to do that. Uh, and I'm uh, pleased and privileged to uh, give Corey a little bit of a break today. Uh, this has been a tough time for everybody, and it's a good time for us to tell Corey how much we appreciate his faithfulness on things. <laughs> I've talked with Corey and, and, and several older colleagues, too, about uh, how tough the time this has been the last year uh, for pastors and churches every place. Uh, th this is not new in history, but it's new for those of us alive. None of us have been through anything like this, and uh, every church and every pastor I know is uh, struggling with uh, areas that they've never been before. We're all trying to figure out what to do with things, and so it, it requires some, some patience and some discernment on things, and I really appreciate uh, the work that Corey's doing and the, the team that he has that's uh, working with things right now. So anyhow, <coughs> our passage for today is John chapter 14, and it's a long, deep one, and I'm not going to be able to do everything with it today, so while you're turning to that, let, let me tell you just a little bit about it to get, it ready, get you ready for it. This is part of what's called the farewell discourses in the Gospel of John. It's Jesus getting ready to, to go to the cross, and this is, it's setting as the, the last supper for all of them. Uh, and, and Jesus is giving some really powerful teaching through here, and it's one of the distinctive characteristics of the Gospel of John. Uh, none of the other Gospels give us the things that... Uh, John records here Jesus uh, talking about. It's kind of like the last will and testament of Jesus uh, talking to his disciples. And it's a, it's a long, deep piece uh, and a pretty heavy teaching assignment. And I hope we don't get too, too much like a lecture this morning, but uh, that you're able to, to discern some of the things God is saying to us in this. So uh, join me with us in, in reading beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14 of John. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. 
he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we come here with all kinds of baggage this morning, some of it including our plans for the sour. And so we surrender all of it to you, that we might hear the words that you would have us to hear today, and that we might be strengthened and respond to them. In Christ's name. Amen. What do you do when the world comes crashing in on you? We all know about losing jobs and failing relationships, bad medical reports, the death of loved ones. We've seen the, the toll that earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes can take on us. And we've had to live with a viral epidemic now for a year. Events like this disturb us. They trouble our hearts. They eat at us. They fill us with dread sometimes. And dread and despair really is the setting here for John 14. It's only been a few days since Jesus entered Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna. The, the disciples had followed Jesus with that excited crowd and joined in with the celebration. And it, it seemed like it seemed like their dreams were finally going to be realized. They had marveled as Jesus had called Lazarus from the tomb. Word had spread quickly of that wondrous event, and the crowd had grown because of it. And after the parade, even, Philip brought some Greeks who had asked to meet Jesus. This had to be a good sign. Jesus was about to assume his rightful place, and the disciples were going to be there with him. 
And then things started turning dark. Even as they gathered for the traditional Passover dinner, they heard whispers of a deadly plot being hatched among the temple leaders and the Pharisees. And at dinner, Jesus talked strangely about his death again, predicting that one of them would betray them. And soon after that, Judas slipped out of the room. Even worse, he said Simon Peter would deny him three times. You know, what was supposed to be a celebration of God's wonderful deliverance centuries ago had somehow become a death watch now. And the disciples were stunned. They, they stole glances at one another as the knots in their stomach grew and tightened. Something needed to be done right now. At the very least, they needed to head out, for Jeru head out of Jerusalem quickly. If they were quick, they could get to Bethany before dawn. And from there, they could make their way to safety in north and Galilee. And in the midst of all this, Jesus began calmly speaking. The words I remember, let not your hearts be troubled. Now those few words clearly mark off our passage for today. Now you may have noticed when we were reading that, that Jesus spoke them not only at the beginning, there in verse 1 of chapter 14, but also repeated them again in verse 27. Now, those few words are standing like bookends, holding the passage together. It's a, it's a writing and speaking technique that's common in the Bible. And it's not just an interesting literary device. It's a way of pointing out something really important. You can think of it as an Oreo cookie. I just happen to have some in my pocket here. You know, everybody's seen an Oreo cookie. You may not have thought much about it, but... But there, you, know, you got two dark chocolate cookies. But you know the best thing about them is, it's that, isn't it? <laughs> you open it up and there's some good creamy stuff on the middle of them. You know, that's the distinctive characteristic of an Oreo cookie. There's cookies on either side and that great filling in between. You know, and inclusio what we're talking about, is it works the same way. The repeated phrase at the beginning and at the end are like the two cookies. And it's important, but the really good stuff is inside. It's packed in the middle of it. Now, there's not enough time to undo all that stuff, so I'm just going to hit a few of the high points as we work through this today. It may have become deathly quiet around the table with Jesus but there was a storm raging inside the disciples. And maybe the disciples remembered that stormy night on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus comes walking to them and says, it's I, don't be afraid. Tonight, Jesus spoke into the storm again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The same kind of message. But you know, we're just like the disciples. Crisis comes upon us. We get filled with turmoil, and we start frantically casting about, looking for a way to calm the storm or at least escape it. But Jesus had another idea. You've been trusting God. Trust me. 
You've been trusting God. Now you need to trust me. So this is the top cookie in our Oreo. Don't be troubled, but trust. And Jesus says trust, it's a verb, twice. The first time, it's an affirmation of the disciples trusting God. But the second time, Jesus says, trust me also. Trust me the same way. That simple statement is more revolutionary than it seems on the surface. Jesus is saying, trust me just like you trust God. There shouldn't be any difference in the way we, you're trusting. Somehow, trusting Jesus is like we're trusting God is the answer to the storms that are raging inside us. And of course, that begs the question, just who is Jesus? And how is trusting God the same as trusting Jesus and vice versa? How is Jesus related to God? Now, now keep that question in mind as we look at the bottom cookie here quickly. There in verse 27, you know, Jesus says the same thing, don't be troubled. But this time, instead of trust, he promises peace twice. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. And just like the message on the top cookie, Jesus' words here are promising peace in a revolutionary way also. Who is Jesus to promise peace? How can he do that? Now that sets the stage for this middle that we want to look at. The top cookie, remember, is don't be troubled. Trust me like you trust in God. And the bottom cookie is peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Don't be troubled or afraid. And so we can expect that the creamy stuffing in this cookie, the thing that makes the Oreo special, is going to deal with the movement from trust to peace. And it's going to hinge on the identity of Jesus and how Jesus is related to God. And so let's open up that cookie now and take a look at that creamy filling and see what Jesus has to say. Jesus begins, In my Father's house there are many rooms. Now these are the verses most of us heard at funerals. I've used it a zillion times myself. And usually the old King James, many mansions, which is unfortunate because it's a total misrepresentation of what's here. There's one house with lots of rooms. One house. It's the Father's house with rooms for all of us. It's, it's not opulent mansions scattered across the hillsides of heaven that each of us get one. It's one house. Jesus promised to prepare a place in that house and to return and to take us with him to live with the Father. And then he makes a surprising claim in verse 4. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And that's too much for Thomas. He interrupts Jesus here. He says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? Thomas said what we all know, that death is a barrier that human vision can't penetrate. We have no idea what's on the other side. We can't see through to that other side. And Jesus responded to 
Thomas with that memorable, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, you don't need a road map or a diagram or written directions to get there. Google Map can't plot it out, and Garmin or TomTom can't give you directions. Jesus and Jesus alone is the way. Or as it's told other places in the New Testament, the guide, the trailblazer, the pathfinder, the one who can take us all the way. And, and so far, so good. But Jesus keeps talking. Jesus is kind of like that in the Gospel of John. If you really knew me, you'd know my father as well, and you've seen him. Okay, that's the bombshell. This time, Philip can't contain himself. He says, Jesus had just equated him, knowing him is the same as knowing the father, and then went on to assert that the disciples have already seen him. And I'm sure Philip and the other disciples there remember, yeah, you know, I remember Moses trying to ask that question. And Jesus said, you, or, and God said, you can't take it, and so I'll put you in a place in the crack in the rock here where you can hide, and I'll cover your eyes over with my hand, and I'll come back, and you'll see my back. You can't even see me. And so Philip demands, show us the Father. And Jesus sounds a little bit exasperated in his reply and says, anyone who's seen me seen the Father. Now, I think the air might have been sucked out of the room at that point. These good Jewish boys had been taught all their lives that God was one and that it was not only forbidden to make images of God, it was really impossible because God couldn't be seen. But it should be obvious that that Jesus wasn't talking about physical sight here. He was talking about the ability to perceive or discern God. But that still doesn't lighten the magnitude of the claim here. To know what God is like, we have only to look at Jesus. That's not been said anyplace else. It's a radical idea. But it's not just limited to John. For example, the writer of Hebrews said, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and, and the exact representation of his being. And the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Colossians, Christ is the image of the invisible God. For the first hundred years or so of the church, we struggled with the question of who is Jesus in relationship to God? And while the foundation is here in these passages and others like it, it would take another 75 to 100 years to come up with the clear but mysterious affirmation of God as Trinity. Now, we're not quite there yet, so we'll continue with our passage. Jesus concluded his answer to Philip with the unexpected claim, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, this is another one of those places. This formula is used three times in this passage. Maybe you heard them as we were reading through that. And the last time is really special, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Continuing in verse 16, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help, and help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, this promise is smack in the middle of our Oreo cookie cream filling. It's right in the middle of that. And that suggests that the gift of the Holy Spirit really is the focus of this passage. This is the main teaching Jesus is giving here, and somehow it's related to that movement 
from troubling the peace involved. Jesus will emphasize that gift as he closes this long passage. Now, the word that Jesus used for the Holy Spirit here, you may have heard it's paraclete. It's one of those Greek words that probably wouldn't hurt for you to know. But it really means simply one called alongside and goes on to mean be equated with a defense advocate in court and things like that. But the Spirit is alongside Jesus. He's like the same kind as Jesus, the word means there. But at the same time, the Spirit is alongside us. You get that dual role of the Spirit between us and God, and between, or between Jesus and us, and between us and one another. God, the Holy Spirit is working alongside Jesus and alongside us. The Holy Spirit continues the work of Christ after he's gone. The Spirit is what keeps us tethered to Christ. Nothing created by or led by the Spirit is going to get us very far from Jesus. That's part of the Spirit's role. The Spirit is the lifeline, the umbilical cord that reaches into the very innermost being of God and holds us there. That's how The Spirit is how we see and experience Jesus today. The, the revelation of the Spirit here is the third of the complex personal aspects of God that are affirmed in Trinity. Okay, we're ready now. <clears throat> Over 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine says, if you understand it, it's not God. And we all need to remember that anytime we're talking about God. And more recently, William Placker has said that Trinity is less about explaining God than it is about preserving the mystery of God. And mystery is one of those things we have trouble with in our modern era. And one of the problems is that all theology has some degree of mystery in it. There's no escaping it. And there's nothing more mysterious than the idea of the Trinity. And our problem with mystery is we think mystery means total ignorance or that we can't say anything with confidence. And that's not what mystery is, at least when we're talking about it theologically. It simply means there's always something more. Whatever it is we describe and whatever we see, if it, say if it's a mystery, there's always something more that we're not able to see or not able to say. So just an example, imagine I'm on the beach and the depth of the water is unknown. And I can walk out into the water, knee deep, and I can know with absolute certainty that the water is knee deep. And I can keep walking out until the water is up to my waist, and I can know with absolute certainty that the water is waist deep. I can keep walking out until I can't touch the bottom anymore. And at that point, I can still know with absolute certainty that the water is at least six feet two inches deep. I don't know how much deeper it is below me, though. Could be 10 feet, could be 1,000 feet. That part's a mystery. But I do know that top six feet two inches. I know that's how deep it is with absolute certainty. That's the way mystery is when we're talking about God. There are things we do know with certainty, but there's always something more that we can't get to, and we have to acknowledge that. And that acknowledgement of the mystery took a few years to come up with. About 150 years after Jesus, Tertullian came up with the word triune. And what he did is took two Latin words, tri meaning three and un meaning one, 
to describe God as three in one. That's what we mean by Trinity. Trinity preserves the mystery of God. There's always more to it. At the same time, it affirms what we know. We affirm that God is one. At the same time, we affirm from passages like this the reality and the experience of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How it happens, we don't know. We can't explain that. We are in the deepest of water when it comes to speaking about the Trinity. Nothing underscores the holiness of God like Trinity. God is not only different from us, God is different from anything else in the universe, especially biology as we know it. And that's why words and descriptions always fall short. They're helpful, but if we push them too far, they go places we don't need to go. Obviously, I hope it's obvious, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are more than persons in the ordinary biological sense of the word. And while the three divine persons do different things, the divine work proceeds in absolute unity and perfect harmony. God or Jesus described the relationship as a mutual entanglement. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. I mean, that gets crazy when we're talking, reading through that. I mean, you really have to read it slowly to be able to understand what's being said there because it's going back and forth all the time. But in verse 10, he says, I am the fa in the Father, and the Father's in me. It's repeated in verse 11 and again in verse 20. There's a mutuality of love that binds Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in an entanglement of God. All analogies are inadequate. But here's one that I find helpful. Imagine three different pieces of yarn, three cords of yarn of different colors, and we entangle and wind them together tightly in a ball. You can see all three colors in here, red, black, and white, but it's one ball. That's kind of what's going on here. And if I work at it, I could probably tease out one of these strands of color. But if I do that, I destroy the ball, don't I? It's not a ball anymore. And in fact, the strand that I pull out is not exactly the same as it was when it's part of the ball because it's not twisted around and in contact with other, uh, other colors as it is in here. Now, <clears throat> the same is true of the triune God. Whenever the threeness gets reduced to one, we lose something. We miss something of who God is. For example, if I ex focus exclusively on the Father, I lose the redemption of the Son and the continued presence of the Spirit. And if I focus exclusively on Christ, I lose the Father's house and the memory-prodding spirit. And if I focus exclusively on the spirit, I lose the justice of the Father and the work of Christ. God is incomplete without all three persons tightly entangled with one another, working in concert. And if we're speaking of God properly, then naming any one of the persons means that the other two are always there, even if it's just in the background. So, Christ and the Spirit were both there with the Father in creation. 
The Father and the Spirit were both there at the cross. Christ and the Father were with the Spirit on Pentecost. Now here's the really startling thing in this passage, at least startling for me. The third time Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I mean, we've kind of gotten the routine of this now. Even if we don't understand it, we know what's coming. And then he shifts gears on it and says, and you are in me and I am in you. Jesus uses the very same language to describe our relationship to him and to one another that he uses to describe the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in God. Now, the implications of that are staggering. God wants believers to be entangled with one another just like the, Holy, just like the Trinity. And even more, God wants us to have that kind of relationship with him. No, we don't become God. I don't need to go there. But God longs to be entangled with us in a mutuality of love just like God experiences with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that happens because of Christ and the presence of the Spirit. Now this is the culmination of what being created in the image of God is all about. This is where God is pulling us from the very beginning of time. It's the foundation of our shared life together as believers. It's, it's, it's part of our, the, the reason for the mutual submission and the care for one another that's talked about in the new, throughout the New Testament. It's the goal of creation, the culmination of everything in God, entangled just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whew, okay, is your head pounding yet? Okay, back up and breathe. <laughs> back up and breathe. Let's come back to the issue at hand. So what does Trinity have to do with allowing our hearts not to be troubled? What difference does that make? How does the Trinity help when the world is collapsing around us like it was with the disciples here? Well, Trinity is more than an arcane doctrine or theological double talk. It's an attempt to speak in a meaningful way of the one and only living God who is unique and yet experienced in three different predictable ways. Because God is one and three in one, we can discern and trust the work of God amidst the mess and muddle of life. We can trust God as creator, the source of order and justice, but God is not just out there. Trinity tells us something different. We can trust God as the Redeemer, the one who knows and loves us as a brother and shows us God. But God is not just our buddy either. We can trust God as the sustainer, the one who stands by us in all things and connects us to one another and to the Creator and the Redeemer. And it's only all three together that give us the full understanding of God. Whatever is troubling you, whatever storms you face, whatever darkness is threatening to swamp you, keep trusting God in all his fullness. 
and receive the peace that only Christ can give. Christ can send the Spirit and promise peace because he is a divine person entangled in the Trinity. He's got the authority to do that. Nobody else does. And you've been promised his peace. You have been promised that peace. Peace does not mean that the storm magically disappears. The disciples still had to go through the tragedy of the crucifixion and all the pain with that. And most of them were martyred later in their own lives. But peace is the confidence to walk through the storm, knowing that there's somebody standing beside us who's connected us to the great God that's in the, the ruler of the universe. That confidence comes from the triune God, the God who is three in one. Know that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray while our musicians come. Lord, we admit that we don't understand. And we confess that we let our troubles just take over our lives sometimes. And yet we long for the peace that only you can give. Lord, help our unbelief. Send your spirit to us as promised by the Son. Bind us to what, together with one another. Bind us to you. Entangle us in your love that we might experience your peace now and live in your house in the days to come. In Christ's name, amen.